The opinions expressed on two-way traffic are those of Darren Coleman and are for general information purposes only. It does not constitute any legally binding engagement between the podcasters and anyone else. Always check with your advisors to obtain your own tax or investment advice. Welcome to Two-Way Traffic with Darren Coleman of Portage Cross-Border Wealth Management. In this series, Darren aims to guide you through the complexities, complications, implications, and most importantly, the advantages of having money and family on both sides of the border. On this episode, Darren welcomes immigration lawyer Veronique Malka and mortgage specialist Freddie Abatol. They'll be discussing the issues facing Canadians who want to purchase vacation property in the United States. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's Darren Coleman of Portage Wealth of Raymond James, and I'm joined today by two friends who are also cross-border specialists in their own right. Uh, first of all, we have Veronique Malka joining us from New Jersey, who's the founder of Canadian Law Group, and Freddie Abatol joining us from Florida, who is the president of Hippotech Financial. Hi, Darren. Hi there. Hi, Veronique. How are you? Do you want to maybe just expand on that introduction a little bit for us? So I'm the founder and uh, principal lawyer of Canadian Law Group. We're a cross-border U.S.-Canada law firm. We're located primarily in New Jersey. We're one of the originating Canadian immigration firms to open up in the U.S. in 2005. And we have affiliated offices in Toronto and in Montreal. Perfect. And Freddie, hello to you. Do you want to take a minute and just walk us through what you do? Hey guys, how are you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm the owner and president of uh, Hypotech. We're a mortgage lending company in the United States. I've been transacting since uh, 2004 and we operate in 13 different states, uh, Florida being one of them, uh, servicing a lot of foreign nationals, Canadians, Europeans, South Americans. Um, So we'll get into that a little bit later, but that's just a little bit about us. Perfect. So we're going to, today's the first of several conversations we're going to have together, which is really about how people move to the United States from Canada. So that's becoming a very popular thing, especially now that the borders have reopened after COVID. Uh, For those people in Florida, um, you'll need to Google what COVID was. For everyone else that went through the great great pandemic, um, the borders now open so people can move and many people are taking advantage of that. Uh, But it's not the simplest thing to do. So a friend of mine from Newfoundland has a great word. He says it's tangly. So the border often tangles people up. So um, we'll kind of take turns talking about how that entanglement um, affects people. So I thought maybe the first place we could start is with you, Veronique. If someone wants to move from Canada to the United States, what's involved? Like, can they just decide to go? What are some of the immigration considerations about how they want to go, whether it's temporarily or permanently? And is there a difference? So obviously we're speaking about Canadians since the show's cross border. So if someone from Canada wants to go to the U.S., um, there is a beautiful treaty, uh, used to be called NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. And under Trump's administration, it was renamed and rebranded as Kuzma. Okay, we call it Kuzma from Canada. In the U.S., you, U.S. people want to call it Uzmska. I'm not sure how it's pronounced anymore. It's a flip of the letters. So we start with Canada, Kuzma, Canada, U.S., Mexico agreement. In the U.S., they wanted to put U.S. first. So now they sound like Uzma. Okay, so that's it. It is. But I think you got to do it with a Trump accent a little bit might be how you do that. But moving on. But yeah, so um, there are different ways under Kuzma to immigrate to the U.S. 
Um, people have to be very careful on both an immigration perspective. It's not an open-ended right, and you can't just come in and come to the U.S. whenever you want to. You will always be subject to inspection at a border. Um, but the nice thing is you don't need a visa ahead of time for a consulate. Canadians have ease of access to the U.S. There's a maximum number of days that they can, you can be a Canadian can be in the U.S., um, and failing that, they have to renew their status and there are different ways to do that. But, you know, for big purposes now, know that you can't just go and stay there endlessly. Most people know that there's rules to follow. So as a Canadian, am I entitled to a certain number of days I can stay in the United States without having to get a visa or have to worry about tax considerations? Well, uh, typically on an immigration perspective, a Canadian has six months to be in the U.S. and then must exit and re-enter. Um, and we're not talking about a turn around the flagpole. There is a process to follow. Um, from a tax perspective, there's 183 days. So that's very, you have to be very careful. I'm not a tax attorney, but we do have with our firm a, um, um, a group of solid cross-border tax lawyers who can assist um, in that perspective. So um, there is a tax treaty between the U.S. and Canada as well. And um, whoever we assist, we always look at the tax impact as well. It may vary from person to person and whether or not they have a business that they're cross-border, you know, working with their working cross-border uh, or are they just residing? Uh, are they retired? Everyone's situation is going to vary. So I guess the first thing is the person really needs to identify, like, why are they going to the U.S.? Are they, if they're going to as a tourist, that's one thing. And maybe they just have to watch how many days that they're there. Uh, if they're going for work, that's a whole other. You can't just decide to go and start work. You can't just take the job in the U.S. and go and start working, can you? That's exactly correct. You're hired. Um, that is what it is. It's if you're going as a tourist, uh, Kuzma, the former NAFTA treaty, has clear provisions about the six-month maximum stay. Uh, if a Canadian is going to work, then there's going to be other options that they may fall into under that treaty, such as a TN visa. There's a list of 60 professions um, that fall under that list. Um, they might have an investor, treaty trader, a visa that's possible. And then there's other options on the green card side as well that you know, are dependent on the facts of the case. Okay, so I think that's important that they know that how they want to go to the U.S. is really going to determine what road they go down with respect to which immigration rules they need to become aware of, right? Exactly. And, and should they kind of just go and then figure it out, or is it smart that they maybe talk to somebody like you before they make all these decisions? Uh, well, you know, I look at it this way. When I moved to the U.S., the first call I made was to an immigration lawyer. Um, and, and that's just because you can't perform surgery on yourself, number one. But for those who are not lawyers, it, 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 to me, it's a no-brainer that you're, you're moving your entire life. And that's going to have an impact on not just your family, yourself, but your business, your acquaintances, your income, your retirement plans. Um, the reason we're doing this, and I wanted to participate in this panel, is because we can offer all of us together, obviously, different bits of that picture. But um, to, you know, to move to a different country, never mind the US or anywhere else, how could you not do that without first consulting the right people to know what's going to happen? Well, you can't just be Sandra Bullock and be the Canadian inside to marry Ryan Reynolds and just go. You can't just you can't just do that. Well, I think that's I the favorite that. cross border movie of all the people that are in this business, right? We all love that. Wasn't it green so, card? It was a green card she was trying to get. No, no, that's another movie. 
so, okay. So they've, once they've kind of figured out they want to go, one of the common challenges that people find is, is with respect to, I want to go, I'd like to buy a property. And that's a common reason for people to go. They may want to buy a vacation home, or if they're moving for work, they may want to buy a new home. And Freddie, this is where a lot of Canadians suddenly discover this is way harder than they thought in that they discover that if they go to the local bank in Florida or Phoenix or wherever they want to buy that property, they don't really exist to that financial institution, do they? It's like they just appeared, although we have discovered there are aliens. Apparently the Pentagon has confirmed that. Um, <laughs> so we're in a whole new world now. Uh, but if, for the person that wants to buy that property, how would they go about doing it? Because the banks in the United States don't really recognize the Canadians, do they? Right. So j just to take a step back for a second, you know, Veronique made a very valid point. So you really have two situations that come up. You have the Canadian that wants to go ahead and make a permanent move. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the Canadian that wants to make an investment in the United States and possibly look at purchasing a second home, vacation home, potentially a, a rental type of property. So each of these two avenues have different strategies associated to them. Obviously, if they're looking to buy a second home, um, then they're not going to necessarily be here past the required time that Veronique was suggesting, where they'd be in a position where they'd have to actually have a certain visa to be legally here and have that proper transition, right? right. Um, and then there's the ones that are looking to make that investment where that permanent, excuse me, that permanent move, and they'll have to go through the proper the proper steps. Believe it or not, in 20, 21 years of doing this, I've come across people that just literally dive right in, don't take the time to speak to a Darren Coleman, a Veronique Malka, and actually get the proper advice and find themselves in a very serious situation. Um, and we can talk about it some more, but I have examples of friends of mine that were moving from Montreal, started the whole process and then realized, oh, wow, I've got a $3 million tax bill that I have to pay. Oops, let me go ahead. And, and this is after they sold their residence in Montreal, right? Like you would think, okay, well, let me take a step back and really consult with the right people, get the right plan in effect, and then make the proper move, right? This is, uh, this is the idea of what we're talking about today. But, but it is, but it is understandable, question, right? Because we, you know, the, for Canada, we're, we're, we're cousins, basically, right? So we watch the same TV shows, your phone works in both countries. Um, it often surprises people that the legal, the taxation, compliance, the financial, they're different. It's like we're two different countries or something. It really surprises people, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. They think, oh, let me go on a three-hour flight, jump over to Miami, Florida, and I can just start my life. <laughs> no but yeah, it doesn't work that way. Right. So the person that right. says, okay, I'd like to buy a vacation home or my own home, what do they need to be mindful of to talk to you before they go ahead and do that? What are some of the things if someone came to you in advance, not after, and said, Freddie, what are the things I need to keep in mind if I'm going to do this? So here's what's really interesting. All the big banks, you should know that, um, have really pulled away from giving financing to what we consider foreign nationals. A foreign national is someone that's not going to be living here permanently. That's really the, the clear definition of what we consider a foreign national. And what that's done is it's funneled a lot of the business to uh, mortgage banks like us. Mm -hmm. So we have very specific products, unique and tailored to the actual Canadian or foreigner that's looking to make a move to actually purchase here in the United States. Now, if they're looking to purchase an investment property, for example, or a second home as well, there are very unique products that make it so they can actually put very little money down with very little qualifications. So just to give you a little idea, um, as little as 20% down is required. And um, we don't need to qualify based on credit score. We don't need to qualify based on tax returns either. So the product is streamlined in such a way where, believe it or not, it's easier to qualify for a foreign national than it is for an American citizen. 
So wow. it's really nice because when you, yeah, it's amazing. Cause when you go through that process. But are they paying process, 70% interest rates and they got to talk to a guy who's located behind a gas station? Like, is this all? That's, that's a great question. Yeah, it's a, exactly 20% interest rate. Um, so no, the, the interest rates are very comparable to what an American citizen would actually pay for. Uh, you're talking about maybe a slight delta of maybe 0.35 to 0.5% difference on the interest rate. So interest rates are fantastic. Uh, the program is very easy to qualify for, and we give them all the, the the lay of the land in terms of what they need to qualify, how they need to qualify. So when they actually are ready to execute, ultimately what they have in hand is a full pre-approval that's been underwritten by our underwriters internally to make sure that they go with confidence to be able to purchase what they need to purchase. Now, that's interesting because one of the common things we've seen Canadians do when they want to buy a vacation home in the United States is they'll use their Canadian home and their Canadian financing to basically borrow against their own home. And then that gives them the cash to be buyers down there. But that doesn't work if you're moving permanently because you've sold the home in Canada, probably. Uh, but also many people want to have, if it's their U.S. property, they want to have a U.S. financing arrangement on that. And that's what you can facilitate for them. That's right. So just one one thing that I do want to mention, Darren, that's really important is to make the differentiation between the Canadian that's going to be moving permanently Right. versus the Canadian that's buying a second home investment property. Now, right. the Canadian that's moving permanently, what's important to note is that that, that becomes a little bit trickier. But it's as simple to qualify for that Canadian buying here if they're moving here permanently than it would be for the Canadian that's buying as an investment property or second home. So the product is the same. The mortgage product is the same. It allows you to qualify the same way. The difference between, believe it or not, is that <clears throat> excuse me, your interest rate will be even lower because you're buying as a primary resident. So buying as a right. primary resident, you get a benefit with a lower interest rate. So you get that, that, that uh, upside versus buying it as a second home or investment property. Right. Now, a, a, related, a related question to that is if they're moving permanently, does this also, by using this facility, does this help them get other credit capability in other ways? So can they then, um, does that help them get a, a credit card or a banking arrangement? Because often when they're going, they're kind of newly formed financial beings in the US. So are you able to help them kind of with a wider variety or is it, nope, it's really the, uh, the, the property purchase is kind of, that's our lane. The other things are you got to go talk to the local banker in your town. Yeah, it's a great question. So this is something that comes up all the time. I have friends of mine recently that moved here um, from Canada, Montreal, Canada to the United States. And one of the big question was, okay, what area do I move into, um, you know, schools, all that jazz, right? So that's the real estate part of it. Then is, okay, how do I qualify for the mortgage? How do I need to get set up? What does it take? Okay, great. We go through all that. Wonderful. You get pre-approved. Then they go ahead and they get into in touch with a realtor. They find a property. They lock in. They get into contract. They close on the property. They move their family. They're set up. They're happy. They're excited. They're enjoying the beautiful sun, the pool every, you know, every Sunday that we never enjoy when you actually live here. Right. Um, and they're all, they're, all, they're all nice and tanned and we're all white. But so the idea is that um, they go through that process. But immediately after they've done that process and everything, the dust settles, they're like, okay, in the United States, if you have no credit, you are no one, right? Right. So... They ask, how can I build my credit? What do I need to do? Well, first thing is that you need to make sure that you get you apply for your U.S. social. They have their U.S. social, and then immediately there's a very specific, uh, let's call it game plan, that's um, a little bit different depending on each individual, that they will go ahead and we, tr we actually coach them on what to do and how to do it for them to get literally from zero credit to a credit score of 700 plus within a 90-day period. 
it's a, it's fantastic. Um, and this has been tested, tried and true over literally the last 15 years. And um, just recently, like I said, a good friend of mine that I grew up with moved over here. He went from zero credit within less than 90 days, a 730 plus credit score. Uh, what does that mean for him? So a couple of things was really wonderful. It allowed him to be able to apply for financing for a car. Mm-hmm. It allowed him to be able to get certain credit cards to build credit. And it also allowed him to do one other thing that's really important. This is part of our transition is go from a foreign national mortgage to eventually transition to a U.S. mortgage and have the benefits that come along with that as well. So that's what really makes it amazing. And, and we do have it all laid out for them when it comes down to building their credit and getting started. Yeah, and that's a really important factor because, you know, my team is licensed both in Canada and the U.S., and we help people with that move all the time. And that is usually a really interesting challenge for people when they go is they're like, I don't exist in their financial system. And so if I get a credit card, it's like $200 limit. Like, what is this thing going to do for me? So establishing that credit history, establishing that credit existence in the U.S., being able to accelerate that process is, is surprisingly helpful for people, isn't it? It's it's a trampoline to where I've seen situations that people just go with the flow. They get busy with life, kids, work, and everything else, right. and they don't focus on that. And then what happens is uh, two years later, they're like, hey, um, I want to qualify to buy another investment property. I want to qualify to use my credit for something, and they can't. They're stuck. Or they didn't build up the right history, or they don't have the right credit score, or they didn't actually use utilize the credit the right way, and it's a problematic. Just a side note, by the way, I have my first cousin that is actually transitioning from Montreal to Canada. He's actually moving in the next few weeks. He said, funny enough, he sent me an email on Sunday. We've been working together for 25 years asking me exactly these questions. Credit card, um, credit, uh, health insurance, right? So he's asking me all these questions that I've been through and giving him all the right tips and coach uh, like tips to actually get there to accelerate the process. So it's really important that they have that game plan ahead of time. And it's like anything in life. If you go in it prepared, you're going to win. If not, you know, it's, it's just, it's not going to happen. Now, does it make a difference if they come in as a self-employed individual or if they come in as an employee? And Veronica, we're going to get to that in a second about if they can come in as, how do they come in as either of those in the States if they're moving permanently? But if they're buying that property in the U.S. and assuming they're going to move, um, make that their new home, does the mortgage criteria differ dramatically between if it's their own business or if they're working for someone? It's a great question. Absolutely not. What's really nice is there's a slight differentiation of documents required. Actually, it's one document that's different and that's it. The rest is uh, really a slam dunk. Where it makes where it makes a slight difference is if they're going to be moving again. I like to create that, that just that clarity between the one that's moving permanent versus the one that's buying. Still going to continue to live in Canada and buying as a as a secondary or investment right. property, right? But the one that's living that's going to be living permanently ultimately will be living over here and moving here under two potential uh, possibilities, right? There's going to be he's uh, going to be working for a U.S. company, mm-hmm. or He's going to keep, he's going to still have his, let's say, business or employment in Canada, but the income will be actually filed over here in the United States. So there's little variations that make it so we set up the file and the structure differently, but the outcome is going to be the same. We're going to get them the mortgage, there's the product for it, and they'll be able to go ahead and accomplish what they need to accomplish. Okay, good. So now, Veronique, to you, if someone's moving to the United States, uh, again, making it their new home. And does it matter from how they go in if they are an employee or if they own their own business? Is there a big distinction from the immigration people's perspective? Huge distinction. Um, 
I, I am listening to Freddie and, and to you doing the, you're on the financial side, Freddie, on the home buying side. And I, I'm, I'm like figure, we're like surgeons in an operating room. You've got the cardiologist, uh, you've got the, um, the plastic surgeon is going to sew up the patient and everyone's looking at it with, with like, Hey, don't say that. No, don't do that. No, wait, 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 be careful. Because when, when I hear Freddie speak, my antenna is going up. Why? For example, if a foreign national, and why do I say that? Because from an immigration perspective, whether a person is going into the US permanently or temporarily is huge. So there's non-immigrant visas and then there's immigrant visas. So if I have, let's say an individual Canadian who goes down to the US and purchases property, but he's there as a, or she's there as a visitor, all right? And plans on staying no more than six months. But oops, I forgot about this business meeting. I'm going to just fly back to Toronto and I'm going to come back and join up again with the family coming back. But remember, this individual bought a property with with Freddie, hopefully. And um, what happens? The border officer says to him, you bought a property in the U.S., uh, but you're on a non-immigrant visa. Those two clashes, those two clash. So again, uh, I'm careful because I, and I think it's so wonderful that important that we work together to, to really give the advice that might work. So if, if somebody is going to be on a non-immigrant visa status and buying property in the U.S., I want to make sure Freddie tells them, and I know he does because I make him, <laughs> um, you got to be careful. I'm scared. You got to be careful with your visa status. You got to be careful because coming back in, um, you know, speak to Veronique or just be careful when you come back in, you've just made a move towards a permanent stay, but your status and your intent is temporary. So that will worry an officer that they might overstay their visa. And therefore that risks a bar to entry. So that's why we have to be very careful when, you know, just, it can all work together like a soup, but the ingredients have to be the correct ones. And if you're going to come in and buy a property as a non-immigrant and you're going to snowbird, I would want you to carry a pocket letter from my office that's explaining what has happened. You bought the property. However, you maintain ties in Canada as follows, and you don't plan to overstay your visa. So now that's really important because I think one of the things that's happened uh, with COVID, and again, for those people in Florida, you have to Google what I'm talking about. Um, the fact that many people can now work anywhere, they just take their laptop, they can work wherever they want. So I think it's becoming a pretty common scenario where someone has bought a vacation property and we're, we're about to enter into the season shortly where people are going to be going to the US and staying for several months to avoid these Canadian snowstorms. Um, so they've got a vacation home in Florida, Phoenix, wherever. And they work with Freddie to make sure they bought it at the best way at the best rate. And they go down and they're spending a month there, but they're taking their laptop and they're working and they go back at home for one meeting. Does this, this is where they can cause themselves some problems without even realizing it just in that conversation with the border guard, right? You have to be careful. There's oftentimes also an issue of, let's say marriage. This comes up a lot. So you have a Canadian engaged to or marrying an American. And then they figure they can travel back and forth freely together, not together, with the ring, without the ring. Be careful. There can be at some point an officer who will say, what second, you don't have a fiance visa, but you think you're moving down south with 
um, your fiance, no, you're not, because I know you're not leaving and you should have permission to enter before. So those things, and you see that all the time, people get together, they get married, they buy a property in Florida or they're engaged, they buy a property in Florida. Now it might not be the Florida property that tips off the officer, but the shining diamond that says, oh, you're engaged. You might be getting, you're married, getting married in Florida or wherever in the States. What's going to happen? Are you going to leave? How could you be planning on getting married to somebody who's an American living in the U.S. in Florida? You're telling me you're coming for vacation, but you're engaged. Mm -mm -mm. You know, so I'm not sure you're going to leave. I can't let you in until you have a visa allowing you in with a permanent consent. Well, that's good because that's at stage for another conversation we were going to have, which is all about so I married an American. Um, because I think a lot of Canadians don't realize that when they marry an American spouse, they're also marrying a tax regime. So we'll, we'll talk about that separately because that does become a, you're not just got in-laws, you also have the IRS. So that's a whole other, they're, they're all at your wedding. You didn't know that. So surprise. Uh, but that's, a, that's such a, a deep, rich place for us to, to find problems. We'll kind of devote a separate conversation yeah. just to that, right? So, so, okay. So the person buys the property and how they go um, can and the conversation with the border guard. So that pocket letter you mentioned, you just want to explain a little bit more about what that is, and is that something that people should look to have on them? Because what is that, and why is it important? It's always a nice idea to have a legal explanation to provide an officer based on the circumstance that you're going into, whether you're going to Canada, or whether you're going to the U.S. Um, unless you're a lawyer, you may not know that explanation. You might hear me say it. You might forget. It's complicated. Um, you know, what's the difference between a TN main visa, a TN dependent visa? When you get to the border, how do you explain to the officer, look, we're coming in. I have a job offer in the U.S. I'm buying property in the U.S. Um, here's my job offer letter. I'm not talking about the pocket letter, but the job offer letter from a U.S. employer. What do you say? So the pocket letter is an additional letter that a lawyer provides after studying the case, obviously. Um, and it, explains what visa is is sought the nice thing for canadians is that they can get their visas right at the border okay and that's huge there's no no under uh, most most visas i should say um and that is thanks to that treaty i mentioned earlier kuzma the you have to have all the elements of the application that you need um and lawyers prepare that package for the applicant um, sometimes what something that Freddie might uh, provide will be an appendix uh, in evidence to that package. We will attach a, a mortgage deed. I like to present a full-fledged picture to the officer explaining the full intent. I'm buying property, however, I'm maintaining a cross-border business. I'm also keeping my property in Toronto. However, I plan on spending 182 days here. I, I give the full picture with the property deed, all the evidence, this way, it's clear that it's the truth. When it's a full picture, it's the truth. An officer knows that because if it's not the truth, then there's no evidence. It just kind of makes sense. And um, the more, I would say, assets a person has, the more important that explanation becomes. Okay, that's good. I remember I had to get one from our company when I was trying to cross the border. This is before they locked everything down, which said I was essential. So I was just, I was really pleased that somebody thought I was essential. You were so found to be an essential worker, Darren? I was an essential worker, yes. What port did you cross? <laughs> what did you give them? 
But no, they said I was essential so I could go to work. So that was good. I could leave my house and walk my dog and things like that. Um, I want to turn to something that you mentioned. That I think I know it comes up a lot and people are often confused by or don't quite understand. You mentioned this 182, 183 days thing. This is an important item. Um, so do you want to just describe a little bit about why that matters about if you stay under 182 days or over 183 days in the US, why is that an important number? Because people hear it, they just may not know why that matters. Well, it, it matters because um, if you spend um, 183 days or more in the US uh, in one calendar year, the current calendar year, I believe, this is, I'm not a tax lawyer. Again, we have people on our team that do this, but you get one last kick at the can at a, to avoid being declared a US resident for tax purposes, okay? Um, something people might wanna consider doing is filing a US non-resident tax return. Um, it's form a 1040 and R if I recall, again, I don't do it, but our team does it and you claim an exemption under the Canada US tax treaty. You have to be careful because if you become a resident in the US, you're going to have to file taxes there. If you be, if you're a resident in Canada, you're going to have to file taxes there. Canada and the US have two different tax systems. Um, the system that, um, uh, Canada has is based on residence. Um, the system that the U.S. has is based on citizenship. So, again, they're not the same. It's it, we're definitely two different countries, and you have to be careful. No, then that's true. So that's something that I think people need to be mindful of: is that Canada taxes on residency. So it's possible to, if you decide to leave Canada, and there's a whole process to doing that, you can stop paying and filing Canadian tax returns. Americans can never do that. It doesn't matter where they go. But yet the Americans can also decide, guess what? You're now a resident and we're going to tax you too. So it's a bit of a black hole that keeps sucking in all the stuff with all the gravity. Um, but that's something that we know does come up when people are traveling. They've got a vacation home um, or they're traveling for work quite a bit and they remain in Canada. But suddenly if they're over six months roughly, and it's a bit of a complicated thing, people can Google it. It's, a, it's, it's roughly 183 days, but it's looked back over a bit of a rolling time period. It's become a little more complicated to track it. People actually have apps now if they go a lot. Um, but I think the trick is, is to know how often you can be there and how if you go a little too much, you may discover you're now subject to US taxation and now you've got to file tax returns and that kind of thing. So, so I think that's where I think people hear this 182, 183 days things. And that's a bit of a bright line to where you might have a problem and where if you're under that and you're going as a tourist, it's not a problem, right? Freddie, when people go to buy a property, um, does it matter? We talked about the interest rate and everything else, but if they're going to buy it for investments, that's another, uh, we talked about buying it as a vacation home. We talked about buying it as a um, uh, their new home. What if they just want to buy it as an investment? They want to Airbnb it or they want to buy a strip mall. And does, does the purpose of it beyond their personal use, does it make a difference to how they buy the property for you? No, so so... I mean, the short answer is yes. So there's the main difference between buying it as a primary residence. So Canadian moving to the United States uh, as a permanent and buying their primary residence is one specific product versus the Canadian that's buying it as a second home or investment. So the second home and investment fall into the same category for most mortgage products. Not to get too technical, there are some slight nuances depending on the mortgage product that we're going to be using, but they do fall in pretty much within the same category. So there's not much of a difference. The process the same, documentation-wise, is going to be the same whether they're buying an investment or second home as well. Um, and one thing I do want to mention from my my previous experiences with working with a lot of clients that are doing going through this process 
they get very excited about and overwhelmed about the whole process and the move, right? So like, okay, um, I've got to take care of my visa. I got to take care of my, my kid's school. I got to take care of finding a home. It's a lot and it's exciting. And then they get here and they're super, you know, pumped up, especially if they come to Florida, the palm trees, the beach, you know, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, right? And they forget about everything else. And it's happened to a lot of people that I know where they're like, oh, you know, I speak with them. They're like, oh, I have a bank account with X amount of dollars still in Montreal, Canada. Well, wait a second. Can you still have that bank account with cash that's sitting over there? Did you ask somebody about that? Do you understand what the implications are? I've got RSPs, right? So all that stuff becomes things that they don't actually go through and think about. So I don't want to sidetrack too much, but I'm really excited about what we're doing today because it really is so important and people just don't think about it and they need to have a team that's working behind them to help to guide them and actually make sure that they're not going to find themselves in a situation later down the line. But with respects to the mortgage products and being able to qualify, uh, second home investment, very much similar and streamlined. They're buying as a primary, slight nuances and differences in terms of qualification, but as easy. Right. Now, we're going to come back in a minute to if they want to own it as an investment and they want to rent it out from time to time, even if they want to use it for three months of the year and uh, rent it out the rest of the time. We're going to come back to that. But you mentioned something I just want to jump on, which is something where that's kind of our specialty is what do I do with my investment accounts while I'm gone or if I'm moving. So there is a bit of a distinction there. So if someone's going to the US as a, as a tourist and or as a snowbird, um, there is some relief. So the re general rule is that investment firms and financial institutions can really only deal with people when they're in the same jurisdiction. So banking's a bit different, so you can access bank accounts, but for your investment accounts, your RSPs, your RIFs, this is where it does get a bit complicated. So in certain uh, jurisdictions like Florida, there is a rule that says the client can talk to their Canadian financial advisor about their Canadian retirement accounts while they're in the United States. So normally the Canadian financial advisor cannot talk to the person while they're in the U.S. because they're on U.S. soil. They're now subject to U.S. securities rules. So the, the, that prevents them from doing that. But there is a cutout, uh, what's called exemptive relief, so that the Canadian advisor can talk to the American, the person while they're in the United States about their Canadian registered accounts. So RSPs, RIFs, that kind of thing. But interestingly, that does not apply to their non-registered accounts, to their regular investment accounts. And that's an area where it's interesting how financial advisors and firms can actually get into a bit of trouble if the person says, oh, hey, hey the oranges look lovely this February. Uh, can I talk to you about buying Microsoft? And because if it's so it's a really interesting patchwork of regulation that surprises people. So if they're talking to their financial advisor who says, sorry, we just had a phone accident. I can't talk to you about that account. They're like, why? You just talked to me about my RIF. Why can't you talk about it? Oh, because there's a difference in the regulation. Unfortunately, a lot of advisors firms don't even know that and people can wind up getting into a bit of trouble. So they do need to be mindful of that. Um, but that's not as big a problem as if they're moving permanently because things like RSPs don't travel. So they have to stay in Canada uh, and their other accounts also need to move with them. So how they do that. Uh, and that's where we come in being licensed and operational in both countries. We can help stitch that together for people, whether they're moving in either direction. Um, and one thing we're starting to see, for example, is people will move to the U.S. and then they'll call their advisor with their RSP and they'll sorry, you've now moved there. You're not a snowbird anymore. I can't handle your account any longer. And that's the policy of that financial institution doing that. And then people feel like, now what do I do? So, so that's something that I think people need to explore before they move. If they're going to move temporarily as a snowbird, they should actually talk to their advisor and make sure that you know, they come up with a way to communicate that's within the rules. If they're going permanently, 
they really need to figure out how does someone help me with this before I go and discover too late that they've locked the doors on me and how do I get access to my money? So we can solve that problem. It's just a lot smoother if we figure it out long in advance. So thanks for opening the door to that question. We'll talk more about that a bit later. But one of the other things that comes up, for example, is someone says, look, I want to buy my property in the US. I've heard about how do I do it? So from your perspective, and we'll maybe talk more about the structures at another uh, conversation, but does it matter, Freddie, when they're applying for the mortgage, if it's in their name, joint with a spouse, joint with a child, it's in a trust, it's in a corporation, it's in an LLC, does the entity that owns it, and we'll talk later about what those entities are, but does it matter from a financing perspective, how they're buying it, or what the name of it is that's buying it? Yeah, it makes a difference. And just to take a step back for a second and keep things really simple and structured for people listening to this, when it comes down to buying a property, a piece of real estate in the United States, you want to go and understand step one, what's my buying power? Mm -hmm. What can yep. I afford? Right. And that's what we go through when we're going through that pre-approval process, right? We're dissecting that client's specific situations, what their goals are, what their needs are, what they're looking to accomplish, the goals, right? And we're then literally sculpting exactly the mortgage product and the file. So when they go out to buy, they're fully ready and prepared. And what does that mean? Okay, well, I know how much mortgage I can afford. I know how much property I can afford. I know the type of property that I'm looking to go for. And, and by the way, different types of property come with different things that you need to consider when you're getting a mortgage. Right. There's Buying things like condo. HOAs and other things that people need that fall into their cash flow that they don't really sometimes think about, right? You nailed it. Exactly. So understanding what that looks like. And then once we're done with that step and they're really confident, then they go out and they say, okay, let me go find the property that I'm looking for. Right. And then that comes down to the, okay, am I going to buy an investment property? What kind of returns can I get from it? And they get excited about that. Am I going to use it partly when I come down? Am I going to use it partly rented out with the rest of the year? So all that comes into the package when we're looking at their situation and what they're looking to accomplish. It's very important to understand that. Got it. That's good. So I think for today, we're going to kind of wrap it up there. We have other conversations we're going to have where we'll go a little bit, as I said, about the So I Married an American. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're also going to talk about how people handle estates and other things when they have family on both sides of the border and how they go and access it and how they live with everybody and how they handle property and uh, the movement of capital and things like that. And those scenarios uh, comes up. So uh, lots of tangliness. Lots of yeah. tangliness, exactly. I want to add one thought um, mm -hmm. that, you know, the goal really for somebody who's going to be a snowbird, I think needs to be as much as possible to become a dual citizen. And that's my personal feeling. Um, if we aim high like that, we then just try and build up the person where they can acquire property, have a business, operate back and forth, move their money freely. I, I think the goal for our team is really to just have a flawless, smooth, and then, but we got to build up to that. And it just takes time. Um, so I would say that if somebody who's moved and is, uh, you know, thinks, oh, I didn't take care of this before I moved, it's not too late. Um, obviously we can, you know, re deconstruct what's happened, reconstructed. I, I just don't want anyone to think like they're not going to work their way out of the mess if they didn't, um, look into this first. Right. Yeah. The well, same way that we create a, sorry, Dan. No, no, let's go ahead. No, I was just saying, you know, the same way that we create a roadmap when it comes down to them and what their goals are for the type of property they're looking to buy, how they're going to structure it, right? Your question was before also, does it make a difference they're buying in an LLC, a C-Corp, a personal name? 
Um, yeah, there are slight differences, right? Uh, so a lot of time, it's it could be a, a tax structure that they you know that they're thinking about, and their tax advisor told me you should purchase under an LLC uh, or you should purchase under a specific trust uh, setup. That will impact the way that we structure our mortgage as well, right? So again. If and it will have... impact the visa. Freddie, starting to interrupt, but it impacts the visa. Just that's the idea. I don't. If I have a branch, an affiliate, or a subsidiary created by my foreign national, you know. So again, sorry, just wanted to throw that in. No, but that that's exactly my point. That's exactly what I was going to say. If you have a team like us that is able to draw the roadmap to be able to get to where they want to get to, it's fundamentally crucial and everybody should be doing it to be able to make sure that they don't miss a beat and that they actually transition the right way. That's really what it comes down to, in my opinion. Right. And you're I mean, each one of us will see people that didn't completely figure all that out. And there's usually different elements that will see the problem. But we often see this too, where someone's they've bought a vacation home in the United States, and their neighbor uh, in the next unit who's from Michigan said, Oh, wait a minute, you put that on Airbnb once in a while, you should put that in an LLC It's going to save you a bunch of tax. So they go to the local guy in Naples and he puts it all together for them. And then they talk to me and I'm like, did you know you may have just subjected that thing to an 80% tax rate? Because that thing that may work for the American neighbor is toxic for you as a Canadian. And, and this is where having a lot of people that are looking at the file, looking at the situation can help people not only do it more smoothly, but also avoid surprises that they get later on, right? So um, it does take a village. To raise a client. <laughs> it does take a village. Okay, so with that, we'll close that off today. And I want to thank everyone for joining us for this. And we have a bunch more ways that we'll talk about the complexities of this and, and, and how we have the right partners at the table to help navigate through it. So for that, that's today's edition of Two-Way Traffic. Uh, Veronique and Freddie, thank you for joining us today. And we'll talk shortly. Can thank you. You're going to do your move? <laughs> this is a New Jersey gang sign. This is a this, this is the cross border. Do it, guys. Do it, traffic. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye, Take care. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Bye. This has been Two Way Traffic with Darren Coleman of Portage Cross Border Wealth Management. Thanks for watching and listening. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for new episodes, send us an email at twowaypodcast at gmail.com. And you can find the Two-Way Traffic Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. This series is a production of the Acme Podcasting Company. On behalf of the Two-Way Traffic Podcast and Portage Wealth of Raymond James, thank you for listening to this conversation. This podcast has been prepared by and expressed the opinions of Darren Coleman and his guests and are not necessarily the opinions of Raymond James Limited. Statistics, data, and other information presented are from sources Raymond James believes to be reliable, but their accuracy cannot be guaranteed. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not construed as an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of securities. Investors considering any investment should consult with their investment advisor to ensure that it is suitable for the investor's circumstances and risk tolerance before making any investment decision. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and should not be construed as providing legal, accounting, and or tax advice. Should viewers have any specific questions or issues in these areas, please consult your legal tax and or accounting advisor. Raymond James Limited is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James USA Limited is a member of FINRA and SIPC. Raymond James Limited and Raymond James USA Limited Financial Advisors 
may only transact businesses in provinces and or states where they're registered.